0: sorry. I'm laughing to start the podcast because the video started to count down and Dr. Kim just jumped like, oh my gosh, here is It's go. terrifying.
1: It's a lot of pressure.
0: <laughs> okay. So on today's episode, I have Dr. Eric Kim. Uh, Dr. Kim is a Wash Urologist that specializes in robotic surgery for kidney, bladder, and prostate cancer. Dr. Kim has received numerous awards and accolades for his work in urology. He's very active in research and publishing studies. This guy's amazing. We love him at... Victory oh, Men's Health. We're very fortunate to have him on the show today. So with that being said, thank you for being on the show, Dr. Kim.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Hopefully we've been more helpful than hurtful with the uh, patients <laughs> that you guys have uh, sent over. But um, patients are always, I think, very happy to with the experience they've had with you guys and very happy to you know get a little bit more information about prostate cancer when they come over to us.
0: Yeah. So like I kind of mentioned just in the intro, we do refer a lot of patients uh, to Dr. Kim. We're kind of going to get into that here. uh, When we refer, we do something called a 4K score. And that's usually when we're referring to him. But we're going to start basic with things that all men should know. And uh, this is an important podcast because it could save a life. It could save uh, someone who knows life. So we're going to cover a lot of good information here. So let's just start with uh, some of the basics. And let's start with what is a prostate? Because surprisingly, a lot of people don't know.
1: That's a fantastic question. I didn't know until probably like my third year of medical school. Like I (laughs) I had no freaking clue. You know, you hear it in the news and you know, it's a common place for men to get cancer, but you're like, what, where is that organ? Like, is it, is it like somewhere in my chest or something or, but no, the, the prostate is a male sex organ. It sits right at the bottom of the bladder. The job of the prostate is to make most of the semen. You know, so, um, men think that, you know, the semen is, you know, mostly sperm, like the testicles are making that, but sperm account for a very small percentage of the total semen volume. So the, the, uh, sperm have to be carried with some medium, which is what's being produced by the prostate. So that when you go to ejaculate, you know, the sperm can get where they need to go. So it's, okay. it's really, that's the function of it. And then, yeah, for whether it's by some twisted divine intervention or, you know, just a happenstance because we're living longer than Moses did. The prostate, as time goes on, seems to develop a lot of problems for men, either because it gets too big or it develops prostate cancer. You know, again, very common as men get older.
0: Yeah. So why is that that that's a common area for cancer?
1: Probably, you know, cancer rates across multiple cancers are going up. Um, you know, I think the latest news has been about colorectal cancers being much more common in younger patients. Yep. So I'm sure there's some environmental factors, you know, involved. Um, but other than that, it's it's mostly a genetic risk. You know, even, uh, even smoking doesn't seem to increase the chance of prostate cancer, obviously increases the chance of other cancers, but prostate cancer is relatively unaffected from smoking, which we know is a pretty strong environmental trigger really just seems to be strong family history. Um, African-Americans are at higher risk as well. Um, And we think it's mostly genetically based for men that get prostate cancer at a a young age. Um, And as we've talked about, and and as probably a lot of people know, if you live long enough, you're going to get prostate cancer. So it's almost like, again, this is maybe like my own pet theory, but it's like a nature's time bomb or, you know, uh, nature's timer. You know, you're kind of, it's a little... I don't want to say ironic, but, you know, in some ways, it's uh, interesting that the the organ you need to procreate is also the organ that eventually develops cancer if you live long enough.
0: Yeah. What are the stats on it? Is it like one in six men or one in four men have prostate cancer? I can't remember exactly. Yeah, it's
1: about one in six, you know, most common cancer in men uh, in America. So very common, you know, just about everybody. If Once you get to 50, you probably know someone that's had it, you know, yeah. been treated for it you know, whatnot. So
0: So let's talk about what a PSA is. So I want to know, what is a PSA? Why are you testing it? What are you looking for? And what is normal and what's abnormal? Yeah,
1: PSA is a great topic. You know, over the last few years, PSA has gotten extremely controversial. Uh, I think we're coming out of the controversy now, but it it got controversial. PSA was actually developed originally. It's prostate-specific antigen. So it's a protein that floats around in our bloodstream that um, is produced by the prostate. It used to be used as a, a marker for people who've had prostate cancer, who've been treated to make sure that that number doesn't change. The thought being that if that number keeps creeping up, that's somebody whose cancer is somewhat out of control. It was actually a Wash U in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, where it was started, first used as a screening tool. And so to say, hey, can yeah. we take healthy people, get a PSA level, And that helps us predict who may have cancer or not. The controversy came because uh, it almost worked too well. You know, it's like uh, I I tell patients, it's like you go fishing with a ginormous net. You know, you like catch all the fish you want and then you catch a bunch of other crap that you didn't want, you know. So the the sensitivity is actually really high. The problem has been over the last 10, 15 years that we diagnose all these prostate cancers, some of which are non-lethal, you know, very indolent would take 15 or 20 years to harm somebody, and they see the wrong urologist that's maybe motivated by the wrong things and says, oh, we should do this, that, and the other two you, you know, because that probably has some financial benefit to that uh, practice or that individual, when really a lot of these prostate cancers should be carefully monitored, you know, should should not be treated aggressively. Um, And that's, again, maybe why we're starting to come out of the controversy, because urologists recognize that, you know, somebody was keeping tabs and, you know, we needed to be honest brokers about, you know, how to treat men with prostate cancer.
0: Yeah. So the controversy came around over treating our, our too aggressive treatments when, when the Gleason score was a low grade cancer and was never really going to kill them.
1: So exactly. So that's spot on. It's prostate cancer that would take, you know, several, several years to even be a problem would take even longer to even harm somebody. You know, a lot of these active surveillance studies have shown that, 10 to 15 to 20-year risks of dying of prostate cancer, if you're monitored carefully, is less than 2%, you know, and if you were treated aggressively, like if you have surgery for that same prostate cancer, your chance of dying drops to less than 1%. So is it worth the trade-offs, the side effects, the pain and suffering of getting treated to have a 1% change in the likelihood that this gets you in, in 10, 15, or 20 years? I think a lot of men would say no, depending on where they're at otherwise.
0: So let's talk about what um, a normal PSA is and maybe what you would consider an elevated PSA based on age and what what you're typically seeing on a lab result.
1: Yeah. So most labs will say over four is abnormal. It's somewhat arbitrary, but that's, you know, the U.S. distinction or U.S. uh, designation. In Europe, they usually treat men with a number over three as abnormal. There are some age-related differences. As men get older, their prostates will get bigger as the prostate gets bigger, it'll secrete more PSA. For that reason, we think that PSA density is a much more accurate predictor of if you have cancer or not. You know, if you have a really big prostate and your PSA is four, that's a totally different patient than someone who has a little peanut prostate and the PSA is four. But PSA density is tough to measure because there's not a reliable way to do volumes unless you get imaging like an MRI. A rectal exam, my finger's not you know, an ultrasound probe, but, you know, I guess some people think, <laughs> think it is, you know, that,
0: that's one of my questions. I wanted to know yeah. if you thought a Dray or a digital rectal exam was effective. And for people that don't know, a digital does not mean like, to your point, it's not an ultrasound. It's yeah. it's, it's not <laughs> electronic. It's somebody's it's not, finger. It's not literally. a digital <laughs>
1: device. That's a, that's a running joke that Dr. Andrew, when he was here, he would do surgery and he would always develop a surgical space with his finger to start the surgery. And he would dictate it in his operative note as, I digitally developed the space. And then the patients would get a copy of their operative report. And they're like, oh my gosh, like what instrument did you use to develop this surgical space? That must be really fancy. And he's like, oh yeah, very fancy. Very, very fancy. But no, a digital rectal exam is the you know finger in the bottom, you know, old school way of trying to suss out if somebody has prostate cancer or not. There's other reasons to do that. I think primary care doctors do it to look for blood, occult blood, blood that you may not see, but blood in the in the rectum, which may indicate that you have a risk of colon cancer or rectal cancer. So there's other reasons to do it than just the prostate exam. But the digital rectal exam for prostate, and this is a little bit of a controversial take. You know, maybe it's my hot take, but I, I think it's really not as useful as PSA and imaging. You know, I think it's an it's an old school approach that was used when imaging wasn't available.
0: Yeah. So what age should somebody get their PSA looked at? And let's just I know insurance wants to get involved and dictate when when they say somebody should have a PSA ran, but when do you think somebody should have a PSA ran? Uh,
1: so for me, ethnically Asian or Korean, you know, so probably less genetic risk based on again population studies. I'm coming up on 40. I have no family history of prostate cancer. I plan to get a PSA at age 40. And, and that would be okay. my recommendation for any patient with no family history and no other risk factor. If you have a risk factor, you have a family history, African-American men, you know, especially by age 40 should get a PSA. The, the danger is, going back to what you said before about overtreatment, you get a PSA at age 40 and you have the wrong person talk to you about that they're going to try to do a bunch of tests to you that potentially may be invasive and could have side effects when really, you know, you just want to establish a baseline, you know, because at that age your prostate hasn't grown, uh, you know, due to time. And so that, that early PSA is a great frame of reference to look back on because going back to your question about normal, you know, four is a totally arbitrary concept. You know, someone who's four, whose PSA has been four for 10 years, that's a totally different person than someone whose PSA is four, And it was one two years ago. And having an early baseline really does seem to be the new trend. You know, that's not in all of the guidelines, but it's starting to appear in more guidelines.
0: Yeah. So because we're seeing patients of all ages and we're getting patients under 40 years old, they're all just getting a baseline PSA. I mean, part of it, is probably because you know we have to with with the industry that we're in and Definitely. the legality around it. So just standardly everybody um gets a PSA whenever they walk through the
1: door. And that's fantastic. I mean I think the the comprehensive blood work that's done at a young age a lot of you know men especially men are not good patients at you know all the men listening will be upset at me saying that. But no men are bad patients. And so, you know, a lot of guys don't have a primary care doctor. Haven't had yearly blood work. And so Some of these guys, I bet the first time that they're getting comprehensive blood work done is when they're seeing you guys, which is a a fantastic thing in a somewhat unfortunate kind of scenario, right? Like ideally they would, everybody would be on top of their health, but, you know, I think you guys serve as a, as a great initial entry into healthcare for men that otherwise would not be taking care of themselves like they should be.
0: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, we have patients all day, every day that haven't been to a primary care doctor in years, don't have established care with a primary care doctor. Uh, they just inherently don't want to go to the doctor. And the first time they're getting this blood test done is is at our clinic.
1: Well, it's because they're afraid of the dray. They're afraid they're going to get the finger <laughs> yes, waved. And and I, I'd be afraid too. I, 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 would, I would say, look, I, I can put that off for a year. I feel fine. I don't need that done to me, you know? And And again, nowadays, I think, you know, Again, maybe primary care doctors feel differently about it, and I don't, I don't want to speak for them, but uh, especially us in urology who are of a more contemporary uh, generation, really we don't see high value in that, that rectal exam. It's just awkward, it's, it's uncomfortable, and the value we're gleaning from that is is limited.
0: So you mentioned four kind of being an arbitrary number, but if you see a younger guy you know, in his 30s or in his early 40s, and he's a higher PSA up there by four, are you, are you behaving differently than when you see a 60-year-old with a four?
1: Oh, for sure. Uh, I think the estimates that I've seen for sub-40-year-old men or sub-45-year-old men is that the PSA should be less than 1.5 and maybe even less than one. There's some studies out of Sweden, which again... Sweden does have a slightly higher rate of prostate cancer than uh, Caucasian men in America, but not quite as high as African American men. So it's a little bit hard to take Swedish data and apply it to America. But with that being said, they've shown that you know a midlife PSA is very predictive of your risk of dying of prostate cancer. And if your midlife PSA is below one, you're really—I don't want to say completely out of the danger zone, but but close to out of the danger zone. You know, you're really sitting in a in a safe thought you should probably still have things checked and still take care of yourself. And that's not a ticket to ride. But, but you know, um, that at least gives you some reassurance.
0: Okay. Interesting. When you say midlife, are you talking 40, 50? Uh,
1: something like that. 40 to 50. I don't, I don't know. How long do we live okay. now? It may be like midlife, <laughs> may be 35 in another 20 years. It seems like the life expectancy is going down, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, that's unfortunate. Environmental factors. I think What's for sure. That? Yeah. Yeah. How much does exercise, sexual activity, heavy lifting, and that impact uh, PSA?
1: Well, I I can take that two ways. So I think they've shown that exercise, you know, physical activity, things that take care of your cardiovascular health are going to reduce the chance that your prostate enlarges as you get older, you know, BPH, you know, prostate enlargement, which can cause urinary symptoms. There's some belief that a good diet, good exercise, taking care of your whole self, reduces that from occurring, which then would reduce the PSA. Long game, not, not short term, but long game. There's also some thought that prostate cancer risk is associated with the number of times or the amount of ejaculations that you have in your lifetime. Like if you have more frequent sexual activity, you may be at lower risk of having prostate cancer develop. These are very... I don't... I don't that's the
0: to, only thing the guys heard. Yeah. That's yeah the that's, these are, lim- these are limited
1: <laughs> studies and limited samples, but there's some you know, thought to that, that makes sense to me, you know, like lung cancer, you're at a higher risk of lung cancer. If you have COPD, you know, you don't get good airflow through your lungs. And so if the prostate is a gland that's associated with plumbing, the more flow, blood flow and other that you get through that gland, you're going to reduce the chance of something cancerous occurring because you don't have stagnant carcinogenic compounds or otherwise sitting in there, you have reduced inflammation. So I think big picture, more sex, more physical activity. Those things are really good and important. But if you do those things right before your PSA is drawn, your PSA is going to go up. And then, you know, again, you meet the wrong urologist or the wrong doctor or whoever, they're going to do a bunch of stuff to you that you don't want. So, you know, we usually tell patients, you know, at least three days, but maybe even up to a week before you have your PSA drawn, stay away from any biking, you know, any sort of strenuous uh, physical activity that's going to affect your pelvic floor, and maybe limit the sexual activity. Um, and that's a different definition for everybody, but for whatever that's worth.
0: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the four K score. So that's typically one when you're getting our patients is after a PS or after a four K score. So a lot of times, like we just talked about, it's the guy's first time ever coming to see us. They come in on that initial blood draw. They have an elevated PSA. Depending on the circumstance, obviously not everybody's the same, but they could go into what we call a four K score. We we test the four K. If that comes back elevated, then they're they're on to you. So you're a fan of the 4k score. Let's explain what it is, um, how you utilize it in a clinical practice.
1: Yeah, no, the 4k is, I think, a game changer. It's unfortunate that it's not being used more. I think for those that don't know, so 4k score is a a blood test that has to be done, you know, um, you know, at least three days after a, a DRE. So if someone's Put their finger in there; they should not get a 4K. I've actually had some patients sent over from other urologists that had the digital rectal exam done on the same day that their 4K was drawn, and so obviously that's not a an accurate result. Um, but the 4K score is a blood test that looks at four different proteins in your blood that are essentially PSA derivatives. So instead of just looking at PSA, you're looking at four different derivatives of PSA, and you're uh, look at the ratio of those four. There's a you know an algorithm or a formula that the company's developed using tons of data to predict who's going to have prostate cancer and who's less likely to have prostate cancer. It's an extremely accurate test. I think the future is actually primary care offices will will use this test as a reflex because if you send there's only so many urologists in America yeah and there's a lot of people with prostates and a lot of PSAs that are elevated. If you send every PSA elevation to a urologist that's probably not great for the medical system. So I think the future is that primary care officers will do exactly what you guys are doing. You know, you get a PSA as part of kind of routine health. If the PSA is off, you get a 4K to better delineate who's actually at risk of something bad versus somebody that you can just monitor on your own. So that's 4K in a nutshell. How we use it, there's a lot of good evidence, again, generated from a European population. So the question is, how well can you apply it to you know, men in America, especially men with a strong family history and African-American men. But if the 4K is below 7.5, the 10-year risk of having a prostate cancer outcome, like prostate cancer metastases, prostate cancer death is essentially zero. So if it's really low, that lets you know, hey, this PSA may be elevated. It's probably for other reasons. You know, either the prostate's enlarged, this patient just happens to have more veins that are draining the prostate and more PSA gets into their bloodstream. But It's not a a cancerous elevation. When the PSA is elevated beyond that, you know, 7.5 to 20, we really like to get an MRI. Our internal data would say that if your 4K is below 20 and the MRI looks good, the chance of you harboring an aggressive prostate cancer is maybe 1% or less, you know, so you're really safe to not do anything. If the 4K is over 20, that's a one in five chance you have a prostate cancer that you want to know about. If that's my brother, my uncle, my father, I'd want them to get a biopsy. So we usually get an MRI to make the biopsy better. But for those patients that are high 4K, you know, biopsy is really in their future.
0: Explain that result page a little more, because you mentioned the 7.5, but explain what you're what you're seeing there and and that those percentages a little bit more.
1: Yeah. So the test readout, I don't know what to call it. Like the result, yeah, the result page that the patient would get. The FDA has moved the the low. bar down to 5%. So instead of 7.5, they moved it down to 5%. So if you're below 5%, you know, just like if you're below 7.5%, you're really sitting in a good spot. You probably don't need anything done. You know, you just need continued PSA monitoring. You need to be on the lookout for symptoms. You need to take care of your body, your whole self, do whatever it takes to get more physically active and, you know, all those things. If you're 4Ks, I think between Five and 20, they have two separate subgroups of intermediate low risk and intermediate high risk. And then they have numbers written out that are the average of that group. So from five to, I forget if it's 10 or whatnot, the average will be 7 point something percent. Yeah. And then over 20 is really the group that we worry about. Um, the, the score report now also has a different line for Caucasian men versus African American men that adjusts for that risk. There's two studies we've done in the, in the US looking at African uh, African American men and how the 4K works uh, for them. It seems to work well, it's still accurate, but in general an African American patient is going to have a higher 4K score than a Caucasian patient with all the same, you know, history, same age, same PSA levels because those derivatives are usually different based on, you know, racial factors.
0: So why aren't um, all clinics using the 4K score? Is there an alternative test or did they just not know about it or what's going on there?
1: That's a, that's a fantastic question. No, in my mind, everyone should be using 4K. Like, you know, I would love it if primary care offices would use 4K because it really reduces the number of men that don't need anything from having to see a urologist. Yeah. And, and I, again, not to poo-poo the medical establishment, not to poo-poo my field, But I think there is some danger in America. If you see the wrong provider, you may be getting tests and and, uh, potentially invasive things done to you that you don't need. So 4K, I think, is a really good test. There's other competitors in the market. ISO-PSA is one. Uh, There's also some urine tests in the market. The urine tests, I think, are probably not as reliable as blood testing. None of the other tests have the number of studies that 4K has. I mean, 4K has, it's got to be 20 plus studies in the literature showing that it works well in several different populations from Europe or in the U.S. It also has longitudinal data that these other tests don't have, you know, um, showing the the 10-year, 15-year, and 20-year outcomes of patients based on a 4K just at one point in their lives. Um, Also predicts high-grade prostate cancer versus any prostate cancer, which, as we were talking about earlier, really is the driver, that's the you know, key. that's yeah. the key thing to figure out exactly. And, and 4k does that. That's, that's the whole intent of that test. I, I think, and again, not to, I'm not, I'm not actually the cynical or, or this, uh, I, I, I generally trust people and I think people are good, <laughs> but I, I tend to think that if offices, especially urology offices that know about 4k are not ordering or using 4k, they probably are incentivized to do more things for those patients. Because the whole design of 4K is how do you decide which patients don't need anything? And, yeah. and so anyone who wants to not do things to people would be ordering a 4K. I, 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 it's uh, perplexing to me, truly.
0: And it's easy. It's a simple blood draw. I think it's only one or two tubes. They turn around the results in, I think, about a week, if I if I recall, and insurance is pretty favorable with it and seems to get decent coverage. And even if insurance doesn't cover it, I think their cash price is actually something that um, it is in a range that people typically want to want to do it because uh, they know they're in a situation where they need to find out what's going on. So
1: no, of course. Yeah, no, I think the coverage is generally very good. And the company yeah. will work with you. I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. But you know, the sticker price for those that the insurance doesn't cover like you're saying is still a very reasonable number for the the type of evidence the type of data that you're getting the value you're getting is worth that dollar amount but if that dollar yeah. amount is is something that you can't afford you know, some of those patients in the past the company has worked with them to find a number that works for them yeah. so again i think the company is really trying to do the right thing and they're trying to provide a service for these patients that otherwise probably would get overdiagnosed overtreated
0: yeah, so, so let's move on and talk about whenever you uh, see a patient now that comes in and they have the elevated 4K score, uh, what are you doing with them next?
1: Yeah, so for the patients that have, you know, mild elevation, so less than 20, we really try to get an MRI. Um, a lot of insurance carriers will now cover an MRI. That, that used to be a point of struggle, but now almost every insurance carrier except for one, uh, at least in this area, will cover an upfront MRI. If the MRI is normal, we know that the chance of them harboring aggressive prostate cancer is extremely low. So we have that conversation with the patient, you know, and I usually will, if that's the pathway we take, we set them up for the MRI within a day or two of getting the MRI, I'll I'll just give them a call. They don't need to come back to see me to talk about stuff. So I'll just call them on the phone and say, hey, this is what your MRI showed. If the MRI shows a tumor, an abnormal area, then that tells us we probably do need to investigate further. You know, we need to biopsy. That area as well as the surrounding area. But if the MRI is normal and the patient feels comfortable with monitoring, they're not a flight risk, you know, somebody that's actually going to follow up and, and continue to monitor their PSAs and, and be a good patient, then I'm comfortable with just doing PSA monitoring. We would maybe consider a repeat 4K in six months to a year, depending on what that value was and maybe how strong was their family history, you know, just some other factors. If the yeah. 4K is very high, so over 20% then we know they need a biopsy. And so we may get an MRI beforehand to help make the biopsy better. Um, We do have a a research protocol MRI open here that's uh, funded by the NIH. So a lot of those patients that we know need a biopsy, I try to funnel them into our research study just because it's a free MRI for the patient. It just makes everyone's life easier because then you don't have to bill insurance, you know, yada, yada, yada.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we'll talk about the difference between a MRI guided biopsy and then a biopsy without having an MRI prior.
1: Yeah. So uh, that's it. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, uh, again, urologists, I think historically have not won favor with patients because they're like doing all these rectal exams. And then historically, and, and actually still in a lot of practices in the area, a biopsy is done with the patient awake. It's a transrectal biopsy. So the ultrasound probe goes in the rectum. the The ultrasound probe is probably the size of maybe two fingers, you know, so it's not huge, but it it is a sizable instrument. And then the biopsy, you know, it's needles being driven through the rectal wall into the prostate tissue to pull out a needle core of prostate tissue. So if you think about a needle going through your rectum, which is not the cleanest space in the world, and then going into your prostate, there's always a risk of seeding you know, some sort of infection into the prostate. So the sepsis rate historically is about 6% for men that have a transrectal biopsy. And that's even if you take the antibiotics, you do like the best clean out. I don't, you know, I don't know what the cleanouts you're supposed to, you know, but some fancy clean out. So we've tried to really move away from that. I stopped doing biopsy in the office in 2018. Uh, Most of my colleagues here stopped probably in 2019 or going into 2020 Now we don't do, at least at WashU, we don't do any biopsies in the office just because it's not pleasant. And then if you think about a patient who's like wiggling and like, oh my, oh my God, then you can't help, but as a human feel bad and and maybe your sampling's not as good. You know, you're not able to get to some corner because it's uncomfortable Um, and you maybe feel rushed because you're trying to help this patient get off the table. Um, So we do them, you know, in the operating room with some sedation really it's about a 12, 15 minute procedure. So it's very safe. It's not any different than a colonoscopy, you know, in terms of a sedation level. Uh, and we've gone to doing the biopsies through the skin. So it's usually just one, maybe two needle holes in the skin under the scrotum. By going through the skin, the infection risk goes to essentially zero. Um, and because the infection risk zero is we can take more samples, you know, because, uh, yeah. you know, then each pass, we're not worried, oh, is this the one that's going to make you septic? So we yeah. really get much better sampling that way and we have various software there's there's three different platforms that I know of we use one of them to combine the MRI imaging with the ultrasound imaging so that you know that you're sampling the spot that looked funny on the MRI
0: So are you ever doing a biopsy without that MRI
1: Sometimes you know but it's a, it's a rare instance it's it's a patient who comes in whose PSA is, you know 200 and you say well do we really need to wait for an MRI or, you know, your PSA is through the roof. Maybe we should just get a diagnosis quickly so we can get you treated. Okay. Some men can't get an MRI. So if you have uh, implanted cardiac hardware, like a pacemaker or a defibrillator, um, it's a little bit more challenging to get a high quality MRI. And then some men are just super claustrophobic a- and, and we try to give you some you know, sedatives and, and medications to chill you out. But, but some guys really don't handle an MRI well. So those guys will do without, but but uh, like you're getting at, almost everybody nowadays will have an MRI beforehand.
0: Okay, because obviously that makes it much easier to know where you're going and what you're looking no, for, for and, sure. and you're not, not going to accidentally um, miss something. So when we were at dinner last uh, time, you told us about a study, an NIH study, that you're teamed up with 4K and... Well, h- help me explain it. Yeah. Because it was pretty cool with the AI, artificial intelligence that you're doing.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that for the patient, all it boils down to is, you know, if your 4K is high enough and you need a biopsy, we can get your free MRI. And so then you don't have to worry about the copay or you don't have to worry about what your insurance will cover. And you'll get, as part of that MRI, the same quality MRI that you would get if you paid for it. In addition to that MRI, we have about a 15-minute sequence that's happening in the scanner so kind of special pictures that are being taken of you. So it's a little bit more time in the scanner. Like you have to lay there a little longer. And the research is being done on those images that are acquired. So it's not research being done on, you know, the patient. It's not like they are a guinea pig. There's just, there's pictures yeah. being taken of them. And then we have this AI program that looks at those special pictures and tries to guess what the biopsy is going to show. And so far, wow. the preliminary accuracy is very good. I mean, it's 90% plus. And then we do the biopsy anyway, because clinically still, there's no other way to know what somebody has. And if they're 4 k high, they really need a biopsy no matter what. So we do the biopsy anyway, and then we're comparing what the AI predicted to what actually happens or what, what the biopsy result actually is. And again, so far, the preliminary data has been good. We're at about 200 patients that we've enrolled. The NIH is funding us for about 400. The study's running through the end of 2026. So um, we still have several years left, but hopefully the the goal in my mind would be introduce yet another tool that can correctly tell you who doesn't need anything, you know, which, yeah. you know, urologists, if they're listening to this, are going to hate me for that. But, you know, the, the <laughs> idea is, again, who really doesn't need any intervention and can just be left alone?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you're thinking there could be a day where that we're not doing biopsies on the PSA or on yeah. the prostate anymore. Oh,
1: for sure. I think... The future would be they get a 4K, they get the fancy MRI if they're able to, you know, otherwise. So 4K, fancy MRI. If the fancy MRI says, hey, you don't have cancer, then you don't really need to do anything. And maybe you keep checking your PSA just in case something changes in your lifetime, but you really just can kind of go away. You don't need to see me again. If the MRI shows, hey, there may be a cancer, but it's most likely non-aggressive, then we'll follow you with this special MRI once a year. And and if something changes to look really nasty, then we'll do the biopsy. And then for patients that maybe already had a biopsy, like on the outside or historically or what have you, they already have a diagnosis of prostate cancer. We can use this MRI tool, MRI-based tool, to follow them very accurately so that they don't need repeat biopsies. That's the big flaw of active surveillance for for low-risk prostate cancer. Most patients get a biopsy every one to two years. So then after like year three, they're like, dude, just at yeah. this point, just take it out of me. I, I'm tired of getting biopsied. Yeah. Like this is some weird long game yeah. torture that you're doing. Like I give up. Like you can, you can have it, which is <laughs> twisted. That's totally twisted.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I can definitely see that. Okay. So let's say, uh, you know, unfortunately you have prost- uh, prostate cancer and you need a radical press tetectomy. Maybe explain some of the side effects that uh, come along with that, what that surgery entails. And let's talk a little bit post-op what we're doing there, but let's start with what it is. And
1: Yeah. So, so one treatment option, if your prostate cancer is really bad enough, or maybe if you see the wrong broker um, is to remove the prostate surgically. Um, it's thought to be a curative treatment. You know, the 15 year survival for somebody that has surgery is over 99%, you know, you you really can eliminate prostate cancer risk by eliminating the prostate. Now we do it robotically. So the side effects from a surgical post-op standpoint are very minimal. You know, blood loss is minimal. Pain and suffering is minimal. And these incisions are very small. But the functional consequences of prostate surgery are, are actually the basis of everything else we talked about. You know, if if prostate removal was like removing your appendix, Everyone would just say, "All right, well, let's let's take it out of there." Like I don't (laughs) don't really use that for anything. But unfortunately, the prostate, because it's a male sexual organ, is very important to sexual function and also can have an impact on urinary function. And so, um, men when they have their prostate removed, they can have some amount of incontinence. You know, urinary incontinence. They you know leak when they cough, they sneeze. This generally gets better with our robotic techniques to where men are not wearing a pad by three to six months after surgery. But there's some men that still may need a pad, you know, a pad a day, just, we call it a safety pad, just in case, you know, someone catches them off guard or, you know, they have a beer and they laugh a little too hard. And for men, that's, you know, a, a totally different world to deal with at age 60. I think women who've had children, especially vaginal delivery probably deal with a little bit of stress incontinence starting in their 30s or even 40s. And so women are like, ah, oh, that's not that bad. And these guys are like, what? I'm going I'm to have to wear a, a pad? You, you're kidding me. Like, that's crazy. Like, I can't do that. So that's, that's one side effect. The other main side effect is sexual. So the nerves that innervate, you know, the erectile bodies run right along the prostate. And I tell people it's almost like a, an eggshell And then, you know, the clear stuff, like the membrane between the eggshell and the actual egg, it's like always, it's like a, I don't want to say a bad word, but it's like a pain in the whatever to to peel that off. That's like the nerves of the prostate. So we try to surgically peel off those nerves so that they stay intact. But even in the best circumstances, best surgeon, best patient, best everything, there's some nerve damage that occurs. You know, it's just, it's impossible to preserve the nerves a hundred percent. And so because of that, men have erectile dysfunction. And, and, you know, hopefully a younger man would have mild erectile dysfunction that they can maybe correct with some Cialis Viagra. But older men are going to need, you know, more intervention. The other part of that I should mention, since the prostate, like we talked about, produces semen, after the prostate's gone, you know, we still would hope that you have some form of an erection. We hope that you still are able to climax and orgasm. But you're not going to ejaculate. And again, I think men have a hard time sometimes understanding how you can have one without the other.
0: Yeah, I think people associate the two together, orgasm and ejaculation, yeah. but they're actually
1: they're kind two of separate. separate yeah, you can yeah. you can feel good, you know, without. Yeah, I don't I don't know a good analogy. You can you can <laughs> have fun at the party without having a drink. I don't you know I don't know. Like you, you still, <laughs> it'd still be a good time. But uh, yeah, it's uh, and I tell patients it's like uh, it's like coughing instead of sneezing or, uh, dry heaving instead of throwing up, you know, although that's kind of gross. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so that's the main sequela of, of prostate surgery. And so, uh, more reason that if you don't need your prostate removed, you don't need treatment, you really shouldn't have it. Cause, um, again, imagine being 40 something years old and, you know, you have erectile dysfunction. That's going to stay with you for a long time, you know? Um,
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a big, it's a big deal. And and we get a lot of those patients that have uh, struggled with ED after the surgery. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of times they go years before they decide that they want to do something about it. And so I think maybe that's the question that I'm curious to ask you is how soon can people really start therapy such as, uh, you know, Trimix, Cialis, even penis pumps, that kind of thing?
1: Immediately. No. And I think really, yeah, I think you're right. For some reason, we have a strange stigma in America about that subject, even though, again, it's tied into the rest of your health. And so it's an important thing to consider. And yeah, again, I think the patients that we share across Victory and and my practice, you know, I know they're plugged in and, and they have all those tools available. They know what's available. The worst part is the men that don't know what's available. They're struggling with ED and they just say, oh, shoot, I guess this is just the way it is. But like you said, Cialis, Viagra, it's been shown that earlier you start Cialis, the more likely erections recover sooner. And so we we call it penile rehabilitation. But the more you do that, or the sooner you do that, the better. External vacuum erection devices are thought to be helpful to keep the erectile bodies nicely stretched so they don't have any sort of scar tissue form from not being used um, in the postoperative period. We usually just wait, or at least I do, for the men to have decent urinary control before we start anything cuz it just I think it can be kind of awkward if uh you know you're you're having severe incontinence and and some guys yeah. in that early period when you orgasm you can actually end up urinating and that's I think alarming to men too um just because everything gets so yeah. relaxed and if the bladder's full that urine will kind of shoot out of there but no I think yeah. Trimix is a great option almost I don't want to say every man but but almost every man um, who has some semblance of erections before surgery, if you do Trimix after surgery, should be able to get an erection. It may not, yeah. you know, be the most, you know, what have you. It may, it may not be the the best and greatest or, you know, it's not what uh, what it was like when they were 25. But yeah. you know, should be able to have a, a usable erection with Trimix. And if all those things fail, there are implantable devices. I don't do those, but we have several surgeons here that, that do them often. Um, Dr. Arnold Bullock is actually, I think he's like one of the top five people in the country for that surgery. Um, So does them very often with good outcomes.
0: Yeah. We don't have a lot of patients that need them, but if, if they fail in all treatments, that's who we send our implants to Um, is him and our patients. The handful that I can think of that have had them uh, had a really good experience with him. So that's good information. So is there, you know, a a young man that's listening to this, um, you know, is his, brains are like, oh my gosh, this is a lot of information. Is there anything that young men can do to prevent prostate cancer?
1: Not that we know of. I mean, a lot of it's genetic risk. And so the best thing you can do is get diagnosed early so that if you do have it, it's not going to cause other problems. You know, the main problem with prostate cancer is that when it spreads outside of the prostate, it's no longer curable and it likes to go to the bones. And so it's a very painful existence. And the treatment for metastatic prostate cancer when it leaves the prostate is to be on hormone deprivation. So it's, you know, if low T is a problem, no T is a bigger problem, you know, so that's a pretty, in my mind, bad way to spend, you know, so many years of your life. So the key really is just early detection. And then the other things that may help, although we're not sure, is just, uh, you know, whatever's good for the rest of your body. So if you are low T, you know, and that's keeping you from being active, that's making you you know, put on a couple extra pounds, that's reducing your motivation to be who you want to be, then getting your T corrected may be helpful, right? Because you're going to have a better heart and lungs, you're going to be in better shape. You know, all those things, better cardiovascular health, we think is going to help you prevent prostate problems, both cancerous and otherwise, later in life. And especially if they go to victory, and they do that, And they get some early blood work done, then you kind of get all your bases covered as a young man, you know, um, in one spot, which is a really nice thing.
0: Yeah. And and I got to say, that's one thing that we appreciate about you um, is that you understand hormones. So whenever uh, Dr. Andrel, I always pronounce his last name. You got it. I think you got it right. I got it right this time. Okay, good. Left for John Hopkins. You know, he was our he was our guy in St. Louis that really understood that we had a great, great working relationship with him. So whenever he left, he's like, Dr. Kim's your guy. So we were so happy, uh, you know, to have you and have somebody that understands um, the hormone aspect of, of this as well. And
1: yeah, there and was go. a recent study actually showing that, uh, you know, there's a lot of fear there, you know, the idea being that if you treat really, really aggressive prostate cancer with no T, you know, getting rid of the T, then maybe you should try to cut down the T when the cancer's less aggressive. You know, again, thinking that, you know, if uh, A and B is true, then maybe C and D is true. But it, it doesn't actually seem to be that way. The relationship's much more yeah. complicated. Uh, there's a recent study showing that uh, testosterone supplementation, while on active surveillance, is completely safe which is something, you yeah. know, again, we've been practicing that for a long time. We think that's okay, but it's nice to see it codified and published so that other people will hopefully uh, recognize that the, the complexity of that relationship isn't one-to-one, you know, it's not that Correct. simple. And yes. again, if, if we think that's helping the patient from a more holistic view, that's making you a healthier person, that's giving you the energy to be the person you want to be, you're exercising more, you're increasing your, your muscle to fat ratio, you know, those are all good things for your health and may actually prevent prostate cancer development or progression.
0: So just wrapping up here, what are you most excited about for the future of urology?
1: Oh man, that's broad. No, I think the the future of all medicine, hopefully, is to early on distinguish who needs stuff and who doesn't. So we can really leave most people alone. Subsequently, or, or associated with that, for the people that need something, hopefully we can do things less and less invasively. You know, it it was a big change in medicine when robotic surgery appeared. It still is a big change. You know, some other disciplines are just now starting to use it. Like transplant surgeons are using the robot to do transplant surgery. And so minimally invasive is great. You know, big open cut to small cuts, but what's better than minimally invasive is non-invasive. Like maybe you don't need anything. You just need careful imaging. And you need an honest broker that'll follow you. So I think that's the future. If we can get more people invested in their own health at a younger age, you know, have especially men, not to pick on guys, but you know, men, I think are, are really, maybe it's Midwest guys too. I, I don't know. We're just like, we're laid back, <laughs> you know, and, and you're like, I feel fine. I got other stuff to do. I don't know if I need to go see the doctor. But, you know, getting young guys invested in their own health would go a long way. To uh, eliminating, maybe preventing, avoiding disease and problems in their later years, and and we again, I guess the Gen X, you know, the Gen Xers or the Millennial, whoever, I don't know. We always like point to the Boomers and like, oh man, those Boomers, they really effed stuff up. And <laughs> if you look at Medicare spending, I mean, they kind of have like the number of hip replacements done, knee replacements, the the amount of medical spending that's going into things that were really preventable. Is very high. And hopefully, generationally, we stop that, you know, that if we start taking care of ourselves at age 30 and 40 into our 50s, then we'll have better 60s and 70s. And we won't need, you know, the amount of healthcare resources that that, you know, some of the 70 year olds now need.
0: Yeah, yeah, So
1: that's the hope. And again, I think what you guys are doing is along that mission.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: Because it's a much less intimidating place for someone who's not used to the medical environment to get plugged in. You know get their health really figured out
0: yeah i mean one of the main missions that we have at victory is kind of breaking down that stigma that's been associated with men taking care of themselves around hormones around sexual health and like make a brand that people want to be associated with and want to talk about uh that doesn't carry a, a stigma around it so that's been our mission the last seven eight years so seems to be catching on so yeah
1: we'll no, just keep fantastic. going with that keep doing it <laughs>
0: So thank you again for being on the show. I'll attach um, all of Dr. Kim's uh, information in the show notes. I'll attach the information about 4K, anything else that we talked about. Um, I appreciate everybody tuning in and have a great day.
1: Thank you.